Well, hello and welcome everybody to our April 2021 Agri Insights edition. Mark Bennett speaking, Head of Agribusiness at ANZ and joined today as usual, I would say, by Michael Whitehead, Madeline Swan, Ryan Callender and Adelaide Timbrell as we cover some key ag commodities, how they're playing out and also ponder general economics here in Australia and around the world. Good to have everybody here and uh, we'll try and bring some sense and at least our insight to some of the key focus areas. we still got to keep talking about COVID, I think. it's There is time, I think, to reflect on the fact that as an industry, it's been an incredibly positive response to the pandemic that we've seen play out. Um, industry stakeholders from farmers and transporters and processors and retailers and government and all service providers through the chains and I think can feel pretty good about how industry responded to COVID. It leaves us feeling good about things. It also leaves us pondering what steps should we make as an imperative to ensure that whether there are continuing shocks of this pandemic or something new in the future, are we well enough positioned and what learnings could we put into play sooner rather than later, particularly the access to labour issue in many sectors uh, has been one where we continue to battle against the the lack of mobile labour as our international borders remain closed and we have the odd interstate uh, cross-border issue playing out as well. But um, that's something to think about, but net really positive, I think we could say. We have real strength continuing in ag commodities. We have strong land values underpinning. We have record low interest rates and it's getting harder to think of new news that comes with a lot of that, but we'll touch on it when we get to the specific commodities. My my own mind is turning towards just the notion of, I think land values is something that features heavy on a lot of people's minds. Um, What is the right price? Should I be participating at that price? And I think for farming, it's such a long-term investment horizon that uh, we consider often generational It's different to a three or a five-year investment horizon. And if you were thinking three to five years, I think there's a lot of reasons why you'd be really confident in managing commodity prices and costs and interest rates for that period of time. But we are often investing big money in assets that will produce and last for decades. And we can be less certain of the future as those decades span from today's time. So a bit of awareness, I guess, as to where people think we might be in that cycle. Are we at or near a top? Uh, Will it table and play out this way for another 10 years before anything goes wrong? Of course, we don't know these things, but it will come down to individual enterprises and circumstances, I think, as to whether investing and gearing is the right thing uh, to be engaging in right now, as opposed to Should I be making the most of conditions to consolidate and retire debt and uh, improve my equity position? Because we can't pick the timing in a lot of these things. We have a sense for it, Um, but we do know that things will go wrong. We will have seasonal variations again. We will see interest rates go up again, but we don't know when. But I guess you want to be ready for when some of those things happen. And you certainly want to, as much as you possibly can, be in control of decision-making that you might uh, need to maintain in a business when those times do go wrong. And I think it's still a really complex juggle for 
not just the financial elements, but for our place in industry and you know the role it has in providing food and fibre in the way that it has done so well for so long. I think that outlook still is really good, but it's complicated being a really great business for a long period of time. And the current conditions, I'm not at all suggesting that they're about to evade us, but at some point something will go wrong. That's all. It's fantastic to see at the moment the underpinning demand, the the profitability that's in farming today with a return to season that we've just seen in most parts of Australia. And I guess the other thing is we're in April and we will start looking for that timely break for our winter program to try and you know get our crop in and, and get pastures set and right for another season for the southern states especially. So you know, in another two months, it will be really interesting to see what we're talking about as to how strong that break has been and what the outlook is. But again, I would just think that it's um, worth thinking about the five and 10 years plus view uh, to make sure that um, the decisions that everyone's making today um, play well to the opportunities that the market's going to offer. So with that, I might start with economics today and introduce Adelaide Timbrell to the microphone. Um, I guess, Adelaide, the the economics of the world are still COVID impact and related. We watch carefully, I suppose, the rebound or the the play as job keeper, job seeker settings start to change in our own economy. And we've also got a close watch on the global economy where COVID is still um, a much bigger present uh, danger and an impact on, on those economies, noting especially that the way that the rebound, if it is that, and GDP takes off again, the implications to interest rates that would be felt across all industries, not just uh, the commercial and residential ones. So with that, I might go to you for a bit of commentary on that. Thank you. Thank you. So you're right, you know, Australia... Um definitely seeing a huge amount of GDP growth, but COVID is still a huge impact on not just the level of economic growth that we're seeing at the moment, but also the way that that growth is distributed. You know, we're still seeing a lot more money being pushed into people upgrading their homes or buying physical products rather than being able to spend on experiences. And then on the other hand, we're also seeing very, you know, very few people actually coming into Australia really just returning residents rather than the usual high levels of immigration and also international tourism, which tend to underpin a lot of that economic growth in our economy. But considering that all of that uh, isn't happening at the moment, that we are very much a more closed economy than we would be usually, our economic growth has been absolutely phenomenal. We believe that we're already uh, operating at levels similar to the pre-pandemic when we look at total economic activity and we think that our economic growth this year will be in excess of 4%, which is a lot higher than what we've seen in the past. In a lot of ways, while we are still in a weaker economic position than we were before the pandemic, the underlying momentum of economic growth is a lot stronger than what we've seen in the past five or 10 years. We've got a 12-year high for available job ads that are going around. Um, So it means that uh, even though JobKeeper has ended, we are likely to see a lot of the people who lose work due to JobKeeper actually find another job relatively quickly. We're also seeing um, that as JobKeeper wounds down between September to December to March, while fewer businesses were eligible for JobKeeper, we also saw unemployment go down uh, in those months as well. So the fiscal wind back with JobKeeper 
coming to an end, with the job seeker supplement coming to an end, and with some of those other emergency measures, including home builder coming to an end, we're still expecting to see some pretty strong economic growth. So our labour market is something where we think things will still be going pretty well. Uh, I think that there's going to be a little bit of media commentary as the April and May unemployment data flows through in a couple of months. That's going to probably sound worse than it is. We think it's a bump in the road and that our trajectory of economic growth will really um, keep going in the right direction and keep going pretty rapidly compared to other countries. One reason that uh, Australia has been really recovering from the recession a lot more rapidly than what we see around the world is because when people are allowed to leave the house or go into state or travel or move around or go to even some of those communal, more crowded areas, they're a lot less scared to do that. And so we see that the restrictions tend to be the big thing that impacts that rather than people's own consumer confidence. Whereas in places like the US or Europe, where there is a lot of COVID floating around, that's not the case. But the downside of one thing in Australia compared to other countries is that our vaccine rollout is a lot slower and that may impact our ability to recommence that immigration and international tourism um, that has been such a great driver of economic growth in the past. So while those other countries have had more economic loss, more job loss and more of health or of that health pain as well, the vaccines will um, probably rebound them quite nicely over the next couple of years. In terms of how this all affects the interest rate outlook, um, there are a lot of reasons to believe that interest rates will still be very accommodative over the next three years, despite our super fast economic growth. One reason for that is that Australia's dollar is already drifting upwards. We are in kind of the mid-70s at the moment. We were getting up towards 80 cents earlier in the year. And that's something that the Reserve Bank is looking at carefully. We've seen that when market expectations are that the interest rate will increase in Australia, that's something that tends to push our currency upwards. But the Reserve Bank has made some comments to say that they really don't plan to uh, increase the interest rate anytime soon. And we've also done some analysis that the market expectations of a cash rate hike do tend to be systematically biased towards believing there's going to be a cash rate hike earlier than there actually will be. It's actually it's true, though, that we, we may see borrowing costs tighten over the next few years, even without a move in the cash rate. So fixed-rate mortgages, for example, and other fixed rates for you know business loans in any short-term or three-year loan period they're going to probably drift up from the second half of the year across all financial institutions as Reserve Bank quantitative easing and yield curve control policy settings start to wind back. So without actually changing the cash rate, we may see some of that move. And in 2022 and 2023, when uh, a lot of fixed mortgage rates expire, we actually will see the average amount of interest paid across the economy increase without an actual change in the cash rate. So even though our cash rate is very likely to be very accommodative for the next few years to help with currency, to help with borrowing costs, to encourage businesses to invest and expand, we will also see, particularly on the household side, that interest payments will rise within that time, even when the cash rate doesn't have to hike. I think with recent developments in the Fed, so the US interest rate policy settings, they're being very cautious and very slow to raise interest rates, and that'll slow us down as well, again, because currency is one of the key risks that the Reserve Bank looks at for their interest rate outlook. Adelaide, um, with more debt in the economy, 
um, in business and households. Small increases in interest rates, you would think, would have reasonable immediate impact. I mean, do we see a longer-term low sort of rate environment nonetheless playing out? And I guess my other comment would be it underlines the need for everybody to focus on their own earnings profile and room to move, knowing that there should be a provision for higher interest rates in the future? So we do think that we are looking at a lower interest rate environment over the long term. There have been some changes in the global economy and in technology, which really push inflation lower on a structural level. So, you know, even in the last kind of five years, um, the Reserve Bank in Australia has hardly been able to get inflation up to 2%. And that's because when we have increased competition with other countries for goods and services, when shipping costs go down, when the digital world allows more people from more parts of the world to compete for the same customers, that pushes prices down in a lot of different products. And so what that does is it makes it a lot harder for us to see price increases over time. And so we do, off the back of that, expect to see that uh, interest rates will be really quite low for a lot of years, even after we start to see the cash rate go up. Because again, if the cash rate goes up from 0.1%, it's not going to suddenly go up to 5%. Like There's a lot of room between 0.1% and some of the cash rates we saw before the global financial crisis and deflationary pressures across the world, as well as the slower economic recoveries in other countries, will really keep those borrowing costs pretty cheap for a really long time. Thanks, Adelaide. Right, Michael, you've been looking at the beef industry. Um, What would be your summation? Have things changed since we reviewed beef two months ago, or um, are we seeing a continuation of the themes? Great question, Mark, because a very short answer for that would be no. By and large, they haven't changed. If one thing has changed, it's been that more rain came and that impacted things. In a way, the story is much the same as it was a couple of months ago. Prices went up, as everybody knows, to those high 800s, and that's where they continue to sit. And if we thought that they might have gone down by now, if uh, a lot of producers had eased off on the restocking and started to sell a bit more, then maybe these extra rains that came in the last few weeks meant more grass on a lot of properties, and that meant the restocking continued Interestingly, the prices out of sale yards shows that the restocking was probably at its most intense in Queensland, then New South Wales, and then as things got further south, prices were, well, not down a bit, but uh, not as pushed upwards as they had been. So the restocking continues, and there's every likelihood that it may do so for months to come. In fact, it could be spring before uh, the spring calves start to come onto the market, and, and we see that potential downward pressure on prices as there's more supply coming into the market after that. And are we confident that the export market sitting behind that uh, is ready to take volume? Should we start to um, get closer to, I know we're a long way from our herd sustainable level perhaps, but is the export market still strong behind what's going on domestically? The export market has been going down. It's gone down considerably considerably to the US, uh, and it's gone down to China and to Japan less so, up to Korea, uh, or in Korea, which has been good. But to your point, are we confident we need to be diligent? Because supply will come back. 
uh, prices will come down, but we need to make sure as an industry, as the exporters, uh, as government as well, that those relationships are kept strong so that the share of our market, which the South Americans will be filling at the moment, particularly for the US and for China as well, is one that we can claw back when we come back to a position of supply. So, so there is a strong likelihood that we will make our way back. We still have a desirable product, but there's some nervousness there. Yes, and what do we see in the tightness in margin that we'll be playing out in the processing sector? We clearly need all elements of the supply chain to, to come together for industry sustainability, but it must be tough for them right now. Look, it will be tough for those players who are in the middle, whether it's the processors, whether it's the, the feedlotters, and the feedlotters particularly with some of the recent upward pressure on grain changing their economics, and for the exporters as well. Even the retailers, we have to throw them in there too because there is a certain point with elasticity that you cannot raise beef prices to consumers any further or people will just stop buying it. So things are tight, but we've all been in this industry for a long time and we've seen these tight points before and we've looked at the fundamentals which show, as you said at the start, we're in a cycle and it will change. It's just going to be a squeeze for a number of months making it through until that change. Do we expect China back in the market this year buying up their quota again or is that going to change too? The export figures to China have remained not that bad. There's been obviously some changes with a few processes, but some of the fundamentals for China are looking reasonable too. It appears that the recovery from African swine fever uh, amongst the Chinese uh, pig population is certainly not as good as people would think it was. So China will still have that need for beef uh, and for a lot of red meat as well. So in terms of the China outlook going forward, there's a, a certain amount of optimism Michael, importantly, all roads lead to Rockhampton for Beef 21. Um, do we expect to see you there? And um, can you describe ANZ's presence at Beef this year? Look, Mark, it's fantastic that Beef Week will be on for people from right across the industry and from right around Australia as well. Not just a terrific opportunity to look at the latest developments, but perhaps most importantly, to exchange ideas, thoughts, issues and discussion. And we will absolutely be in the middle of that. And one of the features of ANZ's presence, which is always big at Beef Week, where we're always a big supporter of the event, is that we'll be running a number of forums to discuss the big issues in the industry. And they will range from really where is the average Australian beef farm going and what will it look like? Where does the power lie in the supply chain between the producers, the processors, the exporters, the consumers and the other players? And finally, what's really uh, going to happen on the world stage and perhaps who are some of the big players in global beef who will impact us who we aren't talking enough about at the moment? Great. And we'll be there on the Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, but of course ANZ will be well represented across the week and uh, we look forward to welcoming everybody to our facilities. And for those that have been there before, we'll be just where we were last time. Thanks, Michael. Turning attention to grain, uh, we'll hand over to Maddie now. Maddie, it's a pretty important month and the next two months, I guess, of, of getting a crop in the ground and, and getting away again. What are we seeing in the markets and what are the chances, I suppose, of producing and emulating our previous uh, season record result. Yeah, well, it's a great time to be a cropper, isn't it? Um, I think we all know about the 
um, the latest record crop ABARES are predicting and the prices are high for wheat at the moment. Still at very good levels historically, down a little bit on last year, but that's not surprising. So still, that's still receiving great prices. But looking forward to the next year, I think whilst a lot of the recent rain events were devastating in certain areas, uh, it also put a lot of soil moisture back into the soil and really set up a lot of coppers for a good season looking forward. So it's all looking pretty rosy on a domestic level. But as per usual, with grains and wheat in particular, it's really about the global market. Um, so globally, prices are still uh, at really decent levels, uh, fairly high, although they've come off recent, in recent weeks. But those high levels are based primarily off not only strong production, but being outstripped by very strong consumption, uh, particularly in countries such as Egypt and Indonesia, where they're seeking to build up their stocks um, in the face of ongoing COVID lockdowns. Having said that, in recent weeks, as I said, the prices have come off slightly, but looking forward to the medium term, everyone's expecting prices to come off even further as we look forward to a really strong global production year. So we look at Russia, for instance, our biggest wheat producer in the world. They're expecting at this stage to come in with the third biggest crop on records. So really looking forward, um, prices are expected to come off a bit. Now, that's not a dramatic thing just to say that it's probably not going to be quite as stellar as we started off this year. Quickly to a couple of other grains, we look at barley, corn, soybean, all being driven off really strong demand in China in particular for feed uh, grain as they rebuild their pig herd. So that's looking at really strong corn prices, barley prices, soybean prices, and that's also being boosted by some recent figures out of the US which suggest there'll be a drop-off in both corn and soy plantings because of this demand for Barley. So in general, everything's looking wonderful in the grain sector, but some slight moderation expected in the medium term. And some of the price uh, gain out there in wheat at the moment is built around the Russians sitting out of the export market. Do we expect as their new crop comes in that those bands would be um, varied or removed come next um, the next sales cycle? Yeah, most people are expecting them to be removed within the coming months. But having said that, the impact of the Russian export tax has actually come off quite substantially in recent weeks. So whilst when they were first announced in and first imposed in mid-February, it really had a really strong boost to wheat prices and grains prices globally as um, the lack of Russian restricted global supply, that petered out fairly quickly. So it hasn't really been so much of a factor in the global grains market recently, but certainly as Russia looked forward to, as I said, their third, third biggest crop on record. Record, um, they're expecting the removal of those, those uh, subsidies or taxes. Sorry. Possibly a bit of grain still being held in system and upcountry at the moment as well. And I guess all eyes will be on the, the new season, which will influence when some of that is released to market as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as we always sort of refer back to the global markets when we're looking at stocks as to what will happen with our our stocks domestically, but globally, in, in stocks level are still at incredibly high levels. Um, they're off a tiny bit off last year, but there's a lot still sitting in silos and storages throughout the globe, um, which will, will, will moderate prices. So at a domestic level, we'll have to wait, I think, wait and see both how our next harvest looks and then how global prices are looking before that gets released. Great. And obviously, we've just seen a little bit of softening in the Aussie dollar, as Adelaide was mentioning earlier. So um, from a pricing point of view through to next year, I guess it's a bit early to talk, isn't it? So much will um, have to do on the Northern Hemisphere and our own new, new season. 
Yeah, that's it. So the futures market, similarly to wheat prices, the futures markets for grains have dipped um, dipped recently, but rallied actually in just the past few days. Um, as there are a few reports about um, a dry US um, and Canada, um, and as well as a cold Europe, Northern Hemisphere crop. People are not quite sure which direction it's going to go in, um, so we'll probably have to wait and see how that goes for our pricing. Great. Okay, might support our prices here, but of course the big thing for us is growing it again, and let's hope that when we're here in two months' time. Uh, we're talking about a good establishment and good conditions. That will be key. Absolutely. Thanks, Maddie. All right, Michael, back to you with uh, the outlook on sheep and wool. It looks like a pretty steady state story, does it? It absolutely does, Mark. It is pretty similar to the cattle story as well, that prices are remaining consistently high. There's probably one little difference between what's happened recently with sheep from cattle and what might happen going forward. That is with the fact that there was that gap uh, and perhaps that nervousness before the rain came over the last few weeks. While cattle prices stayed pretty consistent, we did see that slight drop in sheep prices as perhaps a, a few farmers, particularly in the southern regions, thought if the rain doesn't come, the feed won't be there and they offloaded a reasonable number uh, of their flock. But when the rain came and the green appeared again, well, the supply was tight again and prices went up. So, so it is a story of rain. It is a story of tight supply. It's a story of good prices. Looking forward, and once again, as people look towards the winter months and perhaps to spring already, uh, they're looking to lambing. And the rain has meant potentially, touch wood, a, a good story and a good outlook for lambing. Uh, that ample feed is going to mean, first of all, lower input costs if people don't have to be buying grain to feed or buying hay as well. It's going to mean healthier ewes. It's going to mean stronger lambs. And it could mean very good percentages. So there are some numbers being crunched at the moment on what a very good lambing could mean for supply numbers towards the end of the year and what impact this may have on prices, but how it could be good for the export numbers as well. Um, t turning to wool, Michael, uh, is there any movement in the, in the retail chains, um, in consumer demand, in the apparel markets that would suggest there's room for upside or emerging light yet, or is that still a bit of watch this space. It is in a way watch this space, but it's watch this space with some optimism. And that uh, ties back into what Adelaide was saying about a number of parts of the economic outlook. Uh, a big part of the wool demand comes from the other side of the world from us. We know that it comes from European consumers, it comes from Chinese consumers, and it comes from Chinese mills as well. And if they are looking towards recovering economies, and do we call it now post-vaccine economies as well, then that means that wool needs to go out of the Australian supply chain into those mills to get ready to be those clothes to be bought after that. So, so there is that confidence there. Perhaps the other big thing impacting the wool market at the moment uh, is the meat sheep. And you could make a connection between the fact that a lot of sheep producers with their mix of wool sheep and, and uh, meat sheep have been doing so well from selling at the moment that they haven't had to put all their wool clip out onto the market. A lot of it will be sitting in wool sheds uh, or in warehouses. It is being uh, kept off the market at the, moment, at the moment because that cash flow requirement isn't there, but it will come back onto the market uh, mid to later this year as well. Uh, when perhaps producers feel the market's going to be at a better point or when they just decide to offload it to clear up some space in their wool sheds. So we'll see what 
impact that has on wool prices later in the year if the supply on the market goes above where it is now. Yep, and the season, again, it's it's important. We've still got a long way to go for rebuild and whether that would influence some um, price through bringing more supply to the market at any point. But a pretty important thing will be, can we consolidate last year's return to season into another one, particularly through central and uh, western New South Wales? And, um, you know, that would be a real key to get some more numbers into the system, maintain profitability through lower costs and... Um, to work towards in increasing our total flock size. Absolutely. There is that uh, optimism looking at uh, all the forecasts that are out there at the moment for what the season's likely to look like towards the end of this year, into next year, and, and a lot of people have their own thoughts on long-range seasonal forecasts as well. But a lot of those predictions are that the, the end of the downturn in flock numbers has been hit and there's likely to be that gradual increase going forward with those fundamentals. And, and once again, the export numbers for sheep meat, uh, whether it be lamb or whether it be mutton, play a big role in that. So, so things are looking reasonably good going forward. Thank you, Michael. We'll turn our attention now to the dairy market and things are not looking too bad in dairy. And for a while there over the last, maybe outside the last six months for the year or two prior, it had been a pretty tough run, some seasonal uh, issues to confront production issues and low, lower prices. But Briony, um, milk price at the farm gate is better. It's profitable for most, uh, it should be, um, particularly those with decent season under their feet and um, more water in the system, which takes a lot of cost pressure and ability to milk out of the, um, the irrigated sector. So... Uh, how would you surmise dairying uh, in the immediate outlook? So, yes, we have seen the processes, uh, most of the major ones anyway, bump up the farm gate milk prices around $0.10 cents a kilogram this year, which is great news for the producers. Uh, and also in great news, there's certainly been some fantastic seasonal weather over the last six or so months, which has really seen high pasture growth uh, and also cheaper feed for cattle. So that's been some fantastic news. Um, although it is likely to take a bit more than one good season to have lasting effects on the dairy herd numbers, particularly given we've seen herd numbers and cow numbers decline over the last 20 years and particularly with the recent drought as well. So... In terms of trying to rebuild the herd level, uh, it is taking a little bit more time and producers are focusing on retaining older cows as well as first-time calves. So this is likely to impact yield with those older cows and calves taking a bit longer to increase the amount of milk yield. So the declining farm numbers is also impacting delaying that growth in herd numbers uh, over recent years or over quite some time. Farm numbers have been in decline and recently with the with the drought of course and this year limited access to international workers is causing some difficulty for producers and demand for property from beef and sheep producers is really making uh, attractiveness of selling up um, a pretty good prospect for farmers doing it tough. I think the um, the dairy situation and outlook reporting would 
point towards um, it being tough for a while in dairying and a lot of farmers, whilst profitability has returned, there's a bit of catch-up maintenance improvement sort of required on farm and it's those kind of things and even a bit of debt reduction perhaps. It's these kind of things that seems to have taken a priority um, ahead of investing for, for more growth, bigger herds and so on. So maybe we need to see a sustained period of profitability in industry before we'd start to see that growth occur again? Yeah, certainly. And I think particularly with the lower levels of labour availability, people are or farmers are investing more in technology and efficiency processes. So I, it'll be interesting to see how far the, that comes on the farm over the next sort of 12 or so months. And just the other one on dairy, um, pretty important to see demand holding up strongly in global markets to keep our processes profitable as they pay a decent farm gate price and, and go into these markets beyond our domestic um, market here in Australia. Um, we have seen before higher prices encourage production to the point that high prices are destroyed reasonably quickly. How, how do we feel about that balance at the moment? Well, Australia has been declining in terms of the global market share uh, with quite significant amounts of volume and production coming out of the US as well as Europe over recent years. So it, it is a balance uh, in terms of, of where, where that demand's coming from. Certainly in Australia, there, while we have quite a high per capita consumption of dairy product, particularly in comparison to other developed countries. So it's an evolving beast as people's consumer lifestyle choices change. Um, There's milk alternatives as well as people looking to purchase food where they have a connection with the farm and where their food's coming from. So recently there was uh, the ACCC had approved a Queensland-based label Fair Go Dairy for producers and processors who pay a sustainable price. So there's definitely lots of demand from different markets globally and locally. Yeah, I think we do have a fantastic local industry. And one thing about COVID, it seems to have spurred the um, consumption and uh, purchasing activity uh, here as people have been spending more time at home and maybe that will stick as the economy returns to the new normal and um, it's an opportunity to consolidate our, our domestic strength in addition to the key markets that we sell into around the world. Thank you, Barani. That is great and I'm going to hand over to Michael now he's going to tell me what verticulture is. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. For uh, our last article in the publication this time, we wanted to have a look at something that a few people are talking about. Well, a lot of people are, whether it's investors, uh, consumers as well, uh, but, but perhaps don't know that much about and they're still growing. And that's verticulture or vertical farming or vertical agriculture. What is it? A lot of people will have seen things about it. It is the growing indoors, particularly of horticulture, but not in your normal greenhouse sense. It's the pictures you've seen of horticulture, leafy greens, in giant stacked configurations, grown under artificial light and grown with no soil. 
Why is this getting so much attention at the moment? For a couple of reasons, because it's a new development, so early on in the technological cycle, and because a lot of the fundamentals it's aimed at tick boxes for investors. That is, that it means you can grow horticulture in places where perhaps there may not be the land in, in a lot of urban centres or where the soil may not be right for growing a lot of this, um, or alternatively in climates where you just cannot grow uh, the proper amount of horticulture you need, particularly in places like the Middle East. So what we wanted to have a quick look at was this whole concept of vertical farming, uh, whether it's hydroponic vertical farming, that's where you grow all these plants just in liquid, uh, whether it's aquaponics, that's where you combine it with fish so that the, the plants utilise uh, fish waste as well, so you're growing fish and you're growing plants. And the last big style of it is aeroponics, where there's not even any water flowing through this, it utilises mist to grow the plants. Michael, I mean, it's fascinating stuff and it uh, plays to sustainability and environmental impact and things like that as well. Um, how big is this industry, do we know? It is actually very small. Uh, people will think that there are a lot of these developments in everywhere from Shanghai to New York to the Middle East. There are a number planned, but it is much smaller than everything else. Let, let's put it in perspective. It is estimated that across the world, there are only about 50 hectares of vertical farming setups underway. And that compares to traditional greenhouse setups, where it's thought there's about 500,000 hectares of greenhouses globally. And if you look at broad acre growing of plants, well, that's more like 50 million hectares. So it's still very much in an embryonic stage. And do you get a sense that this is about um, food supporting very nearby consumers uh, and which would take them away from a typical retail setting potentially or is it simply a niche that, that has a, a limited role to play perhaps in, in the offering in fresh produce for, for consumers? Look, while it may not be so much about substituting in a retail sense, the whole COVID disruption period has really emphasised that food security worry, that whether it's countries in the Middle East or, look, whether it was even a lot of parts of Asia, North America, Europe as well, had in terms of would they be able to continue to get their, their fresh vegetables, their fresh fruits particularly, not just from other countries but across state lines. So one of the things that vertical agriculture offers in the future is, with a number of hurdles, a guarantee to those particular communities that they will be able to continue to grow those and have them available for the consumer. And today's modern consumer also has other issues that they think about. One of them's local foods. They like to be able to know they got something locally. They like to know that it arrived fresh. Uh, and they like to know that perhaps it didn't utilise some of the things they worry about, like too much water, like pesticides, like other things, which are some of the things that vertical agriculture avoids. Fantastic space. Very interesting and look forward to its progress um, and tracking its progress over the next months and years. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Well, thank you everyone for your contribution today. It's been great to catch up. Some really interesting things going on in agriculture and agribusiness in Australia and around the world. Uh, we really hope that over the next uh, month we can see a, a lot of you out at Beef Week in Rockhampton, at AgFest in Tasmania and for the many other events and gatherings that we'll be participating in around the region. So 
thank you to our team today and we look forward to seeing you all soon. 